This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from Go Abundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for Go Abundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. We're recording live here in Park City, Utah for the 10th annual Winter Winter Adventure and Mastermind. I was going to say Winter Summer for some reason. We've got one of the speakers uh, at the event uh, that's coming up, a very significant individual with some incredible accolades. His name is Nick, Mick Ebeling. He is an author, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, an executive producer, winner of the 2014 Muhammad Ali Humanitarian of the Year Award, and he's won the Time Magazine top, or he's listed in the Time Magazine Top Invention of the Year, uh, uh, category two times, two times, which a lot more layers to that that you can discuss as we go through, but welcome. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's start with a little bit of backstory so the audience gets to know you a little bit, kind of where you're from and take us up through all of these things that you've done. Sure. Uh, born in California, grew up in Arizona, spent a couple years in the Air Force at the Air Force Academy. I always say I proudly served my country playing basketball. <laughs> uh, moved out to California and then moved back to California and then never left. Um, got into production and animation and design, had a multinational production company with offices all over the world. We were doing really, really fun stuff. You know, in animation design, the Super Bowl of animation is the James Bond main title sequence. And mm. we, we secured that and things were going awesome. And then all of a sudden, one day I got invited, my wife and I got invited to this gallery event where we met or we're exposed to this paralyzed graffiti artist. He had ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease mm. and something about his story and meeting his father and brother just kind of spoke to me and, and, and just was that almost like a rock in your shoes. You can't quite get rid of, get rid of. And so that was in the springtime holidays rolled around. We decided to, instead of doing kind of what we typically did in production and design and animation, which is, or entertainment is, you know, giving people $150 bottles of booze or tickets to stuff. We said, why not? As my wife said, she said, why don't we instead make a donation to that paralyzed artist? And so that's what we did. We sat down with his father and brother who were the stewards of his foundation and said, Hey, we want to give you this money. What are you going to use it for? And they said, we just want to talk to our son and our brother again. And I went, hmm. some people might get this reference, but what you talking about with us? Right? <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. And they, I said, well, how do you talk now? And they said, we talk through a piece of paper. We have a piece of paper with the alphabet on it and we run our finger along it. And when our finger gets to the letter that my brother wants, he blinks mm. and then we write it down. And then we start again, finger, letter, blink, finger, letter, blink. So he said, it's a pain. If he blinks at the wrong time, if I blink at the wrong time, everything goes, you know, goes south. And so I kind of sat there for a second and was like, what? That does, I mean, I live in Los Angeles. This is 13 miles away from where I live. We have a GMP greater than most developing nations. Right, right. And this dude, because his parents didn't make the right amount of money and have the right health insurance, he's forced to talk through a piece of paper when people literally in the hospital rooms next to him we're talking with these these devices, what I call them Stephen Hawking machines, right? Oh, sure. Because sure. we've all seen either, you know, videos or, or shows or, or articles about Stephen Hawking moving his eyes back and forth. And that's what I thought was ubiquitous because I don't have any money in my family with, with any kind of trapped in syndrome. And that's not the case. And so on, the di on a dime, I pivoted. I went, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to get you one of those Stephen Hawking machines. <laughs> yeah. 
And it was funny because they looked at me nicely and then they looked at the check and they looked back at me and they said, no, you're not. You don't have enough money to get one of those Stephen Hawking machines. And I was like, guys, I'm a producer. I make people do shit they shouldn't do all the time. We got this. We're going to figure this out. And so they got fired up and and I was watching them get fired up. And then I got kind of taken into the kind of caught up in the moment. I said, well, wait a second. If we can figure out if there's a way for him to talk with his eyes, why don't we figure out how to hack that same machine and figure out how to make it so he can draw with his eyes. Hmm. What if he could draw with his eyes? And they said, you can do that. And I didn't answer because the answer was no, I didn't know how to do it, but I didn't say no. And they thought that was a yes. And they left and it took about a year to build a team, but flew people from all around the world. They came into my house, my wife and kids and I moved out. They all moved in. We moved the tables and chairs against the wall. We went crazy for about two and a half weeks. And in the end, we ended up creating this thing called the iRider, which is cheap sunglasses from the Venice Beach Boardwalk, a coat hanger, zip ties, duct tape, web camera, some really good code, plug it into the computer, put the glasses on him, and he could draw again. And so with his family and friends gathered watching this, we kind of unveiled this thing and it was at his hospital room. It was late at night. He was upstairs on the fourth floor. We set up a wireless signal down to the parking lot, connected that to this massive projector that would project against the wall, against the side of a building. And for the first time in seven years, this dude who had been lying motionless in the bed drew again for the first time. No shit. And so that is that your reaction (laughs) was this moment where I was just and everybody on the team, everybody around me and my family was there. We were like, oh, my God, what just happened? It was this 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 rising from the ashes, this this just this amazing moment where this dude who had had all of his freedom ripped away from him from this horrific disease was not only communicating with his family, Mm -hmm. But he was doing what he loved again. And so we're like, that's amazing. And then we all went out for beers to celebrate. And then we all went home. And then everyone flew home. Yeah. And then we woke up. And we woke up. And it all of a sudden, everybody from around the world was coming and talking to us. It got Time Magazine's, our first Time Magazine top invention, TED Talks. And I always wanted to do a TED Talk. I had no idea what to talk about. But now all of a sudden that. And it was one thing after another. And so that was this moment where I went, well, maybe this is what I should do with my life. Maybe mm-hmm. I should use what we now call technology for the sake of humanity, make technology that makes the world a better place and that helps people. And the funny thing about that is I was thinking about it and praying about it and meditating about it, talking to mentors about it. And I made the decision not to. I was Interesting. Like, I'm like, I'm not going to do it. I got lucky. Just enjoy your Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> and almost the moment I made that decision, I got an email from the artist and the email said that was the first time I'd drawn anything for seven years. Mm. I feel like I've been held underwater and someone finally reached down and pulled my head up so I could take a breath. When you get an email like that, what do you do? You're like, all right, this is what we're doing. And so that, that was the moment, that very moment when I read that email, that was the moment that Not Impossible Labs began. I want to come back to that because there's a lot in that moment that I'm really curious about. But one thing that's in my mind as you talked about it was, so you're a producer, you're, I don't know, creative, I guess, right? You're doing creative work. That's the way I'm taking it anyway, right? Producers manage the creative process. They're not the ones that are doing the creative. They're the ones, that's what an executive producer is. They're the ones that oversee it. They make it happen. 
if a wall or a speed bump gets in the way, they move it out of the way to allow the creative process to happen. Where did technology, I mean, you're in the technology space now. Is that just something you've always been invested in? Like, how did you no, become? No, that's what I'm saying, man. This is an accident. This yeah. is a total accident. The Being in animation and design, right, you right. work on really powerful computers, right? And so I got a chance to see the brilliance of people who would code I mean, it's a crazy thing, but it's people will code to make things pretty, yeah, right? Sure. It's not just to make have things happen. So that exposure to technology was really my first at bat to watch how technology works. And then I just made the assumption, having been a producer, like, all right, I don't know how the hell I'm going to do this, yeah. but I know how to build teams. And I just started to do what producers do, which you start to network and talk and research and, and, and sell people on, or not sell, you enlist people into this concept of like, what would happen if we tried to help this one dude and people, people signed up. Ultimate visionary, right? You, you provide that vision and people get enrolled in it. That's incredible. That's an amazing story. So take me now to this moment of like, I decided not to, right? What do you, what do you credit? I mean, you know, is it a belief in the universe? All of that stuff. Has this come up in other parts of your life? But like this guy sends the email the exact moment it sounds like that you're about to not do this. What do you credit that to? Is there a spiritual component? Is it just timing? I'm kind of curious where you take that. So I I believe I believe in destiny, mm. but I also believe very much in self-direction, right? And you know, the saying the, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get. I think though sometimes at me personally and my family and friends will tell you there's a degree of spontaneity that is kind of a effort. Let's go for it. Let's see what happens. What's the worst that could happen? Yeah. And so I think in that evaluation process, I, was, I kind of looked at it and I doubted myself and I doubted that I could do this again. And I was just like, ah, you know. I got lucky, but enjoy it. Enjoy, you know, as I said, and enjoy your Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame and make clip the newspaper clippings and make a little scrapbook to show your grandkids and, yeah, sure. and then just get back to doing. What I was doing was incredibly successful, so there was no reason. It wasn't like I was having this consideration of like, oh, I don't like what I'm doing. I loved what I was doing, but then all of a sudden this was exposed to me and the power of helping somebody. There's um, There's a... There's an author named Anne Rand. She mm. wrote uh, The Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged. She wrote a lot of books like sure. that. And she's a controversial writer. But one of the things that she always talks about is this kind of self-direction, right, that, that we possess as human beings. But the other thing is she wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. And The Virtue of Selfishness is the conventional definition of selfishness is, is what? What would you say? Uh, you know, uh, uh, only about you. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Do things that make you feel good, right. things that are about you. She said, how do you feel when you help another human being? How does it make you feel? Yeah, makes me feel great. So she said, great. Let's flip. It's a semantical conversation. Yeah, sure. Let's flip the words. Let's say that when you help someone, it makes you feel great. People would typically call that altruistic. Let's call that selfish. Why don't you operate your life being as selfish as you can helping other people? Because yeah. that is just a constant adrenaline endorphin rush of, of making you feel like you're actually like doing, contributing to the world, doing mm. some good in the world. And so that, I mean, it's a philosophical semantical conversation, but that always stuck with me. Mm. And I think that was one of the considerations that I contemplated when this thing went down and just went, I mean, if, if all of a sudden, you know, who you, you believe in God or the universe or whatever gave you a magic wand and you realize that you can help people and you just set it down because you wanted to keep making animation. Yeah. 
that was kind of the the final consideration is when I got that email, I was like, all right, this is, that was the, the extra nudge that the universe gave me and said, all right, here we go. Now I spent most of the time the next couple of years just trying to figure out how the hell I was going to pull this off. Sure. There was no business model associated with it. It was more of what is now a saying and a mantra and it's on signs all over our office. It's on our t-shirts, but it's commit mm. and then figure it out. I love that. And we, that's how we operate at Not Impossible. I love that. So sort of, yeah, we, uh, part of a, a saying that I use often is kind of a ready fire aim mm -hmm. to some extent, right? Like I don't, some people say fire first, but it's like, no, I think you have that ready, that commit, right? And then you go as yeah. opposed to just analyzing it to death before you make a motion. Um, wow. That was amazing. So tell me about the next or first project under your new, under your new company. What's the next thing? You, so you, you, you have this thing, you have your Andy Warhol 15 minutes of fame, and now it's like you make this decision. Okay, I'm going to go. What do you do? What, what, what's the like? How do you, you find start the to next project? It, you, you, you realize you're like, wow, I have this this lightsaber. Where do I point it? Right, you know, exactly. what, what do I yeah. cut with this thing? Right. And so we started doing some things and we failed, and we started some things and we failed, and we started some things and failed. And then there was this one night I was out to dinner with a friend of mine, and he said, "Hey, how's this not impossible thing going?" I'm like, "Ah, oh, it's it's great, but you know, I haven't quite cracked the code yet." And he goes, "Well, do me a favor. After dinner, go home and research this guy named Dr. Tom Katana." Just trust me, write his name down, but go home and research him. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go research him. This guy blew my mind. He was a naval surgeon who became a missionary doctor. He was living in Syria called the, in, in Sudan called the Nuba Mountains. He's a modern-day Mother Teresa, and I'm reading his story late at night. Family's asleep, and it talks about the one thing that this guy hates to do. He, I mean, he has to do everything. Pull, draw blood, pull teeth, deliver babies. You know, if you've got a hangnail or if you you know, or the one thing he hates to do, or if you've got a limb hanging off, he mm. has to fix it. And so the one thing he hates to do is perform amputations mm. because it's an agrarian society and it's these, these people, they live off the land. And that's, that's not just an inconvenience. That's a really debilitating thing. And so I was like, well, why is this guy performing so many amputations? So I dug into that. And the reason is, is because he, um, the current reigning president of Sudan was constantly bombing the people of the Nuba Mountains with these these horrible giant Molotov cocktails made full of jet fuel and shrapnel. And so he was constantly fixing people. So these things would hit the ground and spray shrapnel and that would rip off limbs or it would kill people. So I'm reading this story and you can just imagine like I'm, you're sitting in front of me and I'm just leaning in a little bit further. I'm leaning in a little, I'm, going, I'm, I'm in deep now. I'm, I'm in 100%. And it talked about one particular case one particular story of this young boy named Daniel mm -hmm. who was tending his family's goats and cows. He heard the bombers coming. Bombers come every day. People are just used to it. Like when the bombs come, they go hide behind rocks. They, they get in foxholes. It's just part of, you know, it's like the monsoon season. It's just, that's what happens, yeah. which is sad in and of itself. Heard him coming. There was nobody. He was in the middle of an open field. There was no place for him to run or hide. He sees a tree. He goes, he runs behind a tree, wraps his arms around a tree. The bomb goes off not far from where he was. Because he was behind the tree, his body was protected from the blast. But because his arms were on the other side, it blew off his arms. So I'm scrolling through this picture. It's this thing by Alex Perry in Time. And I'm, I'm scrolling through it. And I see the image of this kid, this, this lying, you know, in a, in a gurney with no arms. And I go on reading it and it talks about the one thing he said, the thing that he, when he woke up and he realized he was a double amputee, he said, if I could die, I would. 
which is understandable. Mm. Like, think about that. If your kids had both their arms blown off yeah. and they woke up and they realized I don't have arms, they would be, I know my kids would be like, poor me, what was me? This is ruining my life. Da, da, da. That, that would be their first response. That wasn't this kid's response. His first response was, if I could die, I would, because now I'm going to be such a burden to my family. Wow. His first thought was being unselfish yeah, yeah. and being wanting to not be a burden to his family. And I was like, all right, God dang it. Here we go. Commit and figure it out. Woke sure. up the next day, told my wife, she said, are we going to move out of the house again? And a bunch of strange people are moving in and we're going to start. And I said, yep, here we go again. <laughs> here we go. So rinse and repeat. Yeah. And uh, the crazy thing is, is throughout the process, fail. I mean, one of the chapters of my book is fail, 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 succeed, repeat as necessary. Yeah. We're going through this thing. Nothing's working. It works a little bit. It stops working, works a little bit. We finally get to a point, but four months to the day, that I went out to dinner with that friend of mine. So we're moving fast. Yeah. Four months of the day, I was in Sudan with that boy and we figured out how to make a 3D uh, printed arm for him and allowed him to feed himself for the first time in two years. We're, again, we're going to come back. You guys, there's so much in there. So first off, did he know you were doing this? Did you get in touch? Like, were you just a guy in LA? Nah, I got a hold of Dr. Tom okay. and Dr. Tom, I said, look, I'm crazy. I you know, don't think I'm crazy, but I am. But yeah. this is what I want to do. And he's like, awesome. We'd love to love to have you. He's a he's a super generous man. And he said, Yeah, whatever we whatever we can do to help you would be great. But this is, you know, we'd love to have you come out and try to help Daniel. Gotcha. And I have to ask this of a man who won two time Time magazine awards, Wired magazine, all these different Tribeca, whatever, all these things that you're gonna talk about as we go through uh, some of the accolades that you've had. But <laughs> You bring these people, in, all these people into your house, your poor wife, you bring all these people into your house, right? They move in and you're, you're, you're the producer. You're the guy that brings them all together and then tries to figure it out, commit and then, and then go kind of thing. Right. So what's the first thing that you do in that setting? If this is like for me as an entrepreneur, trying to get advice from a, a very seasoned and accomplished entrepreneur, what's the first thing you do in that process? Is it, are you speaking? Are you creating vision? Are you, are you enrolling the team? Like what? Can you give me kind of the first few steps of that process? So one of the, again, we live on a couple mantras, right? There's a couple founding principles for Non-Impossible Labs. One of them is help one, help many. Yeah. So when we start, we don't start trying to create a 3D printed prosthetic solution that can help alleviate uh, limb loss in remote regions. Now that's what we did. Sure. But if I say to you, hey, do you want to help me create a scalable 3D printed solution that can help alleviate limb loss and improve quality of life in remote far off corners? You, I might get you. You might go, yeah, that sounds cool. That sounds pretty neat. But yeah. if I say, hey, here's this young boy named Daniel. Yeah. He's 12 years old. He lost both of his hands, both of his arms. Um, here's his story. Here's what he said when he realized that he lost both of his arms. Do you want to help me build an arm for Daniel? Mm. The answer is going to be, fuck yeah, All let's day. do it. All, All day. day long. Let's go, right? Because mm. now you are not thinking about the concept of building a 3D printed arm. You're thinking about a young boy named Daniel. How old are your kids? Uh, six and three. So you can relate, like, what if my kids had yeah. this happen to them? You're like, all right, I'm in. I'm in for Daniel. Now, the beautiful thing about it is in help, and this is one of our fundamental design principles, in helping Daniel and focusing on his needs and the circumstances around his situation, it gives you this really, really tight focus of how you're going to try to solve that problem. And in doing so, guess what happens? You end up accommodating for and learning from how to create a solution that can scale to help many people. Mm. So that's what help, what help one, help many means. And so we always, at the beginning of every project, always start by asking ourselves the question, who is the one? 
who's the one let's nail this let's really focus on this and then we can open up the aperture and help more people my ignorance on this topic is, is where this next couple of questions come from. But uh, double amputee, I know of prosthetics. Until I read about you, I'd never heard of a 3D printed arm. So I've heard of prosthetics. Uh, what is the, it was a prosthetic not an option? Well, let me start there. It was a prosthetic not an option. I, I, I'm sure there's fit issues or whatever. Was, was, this the, the, did this, was this determined to be really the only solution for him and why? Uh, so prosthetics, um, especially when you're talking about low-end prosthetics, yeah. they're largely cosmetic. They gotcha. do very little. You know, you can use it as like a leverage point to, you know, you can't pick something up, yeah. but you can put it, maybe use your, the arm or whatever it is to lean against it. Or if it's a leg, it's almost like a, a cane that's attached to your, to your stump. Prosthetics are expensive. Mm. They're not hyper-functional and they're difficult to, to get and get to fit right. Imagine if you lived in a world where there's, you know, you might see a car or two every couple of days and it's usually the UN mm. or some relief agency. Um, this, we're talking remote parts of the world. Yeah. There's no manufacturing. Like the manufacturing you get is what you make of yourself. The houses you live in are mud huts, mm. you know, and straw roofs. There's, you know, if, if you're fortunate enough to live in a place where you can get some bricks or things like that, oh, that's, that's incredible. So we had to figure out a way to make it so that you could create something that could scale. And so that was our whole vision was how do you create something that you can actually get and make it so that it's just in time and bespoke for that particular person. So that, that was the principle around it. What's uh, what I, I can't imagine 3D printed arm. Like what functionality does he have? What functionality does he not have as a result of having these arms? So. So when we built it, and we got to keep in mind, this was this was years ago, right? Yeah. So this was the very start. And what we built, the beautiful thing, and let me let me skip to the to the punchline on here. The way that not impossible works is that we always measure how can we create the most amount of impact. When we say we're making the eye rider, we're making the Daniel arm, or we've got a slew of other things we're working on, what's going to create the most amount of impact? Once we've decided that. Then we say, what's the way that that, what's the vehicle that's going to do that? Do we give it away open source? Mm. Do we give it to a philanthropy? Do we start a for-profit company? Yeah. And we have examples across the board and all that. So we made the decision with Daniel, with the, the Daniel arm, like, let's just post this thing open source. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the, what we got in terms of the initial tech around it was given to us through a guy named Richard Van Ass. And so, and he was doing it open source too. So in principle, it was like, you, you don't, you don't take some of this open source and then try to figure out right. and monetize it. So what has happened since that time is people, kids are making these things just recreationally. Like 3D printing has become, mm. it was really big for a second. Now it's, now it's just ubiquitous. You don't even, you know, it's not even as sexy as it used to be. And now yeah. it's done, being done for things uh, you know, hearts I've heard, right. There's a, you can, you can 3d print buildings. You can 3d yeah. print, you know, cars, you can 3d print a lot of different things. It's just another manufacturing device. So coming back around to this, our whole point on this was how do you create something that at that particular time, this is years ago, worked for Daniel, but then how do you give it away? So other people can iterate on it. And now that's exactly what happens. If you look out into the kind of the 3d spin, the 3d printing sphere, 
their stuff that blows our stuff away. And they've used some of our initial thoughts and concepts to build upon. But now it's just, you know, people have refined it. But that's kind of the beauty, I think, of humanity is we are constantly standing on the shoulders of our predecessors and standing on the shoulders of others. So you're building something and someone else sees it and goes, oh, wait a second. There's... 75% of that's amazing, but 25% of that's lame. I'm going to build, I'm going to try to make that better. And then they build upon that and it gets better and better. What do you credit? What components of your business of not impossible, all of that, do you credit with the award-winning nature of all that you're doing? You've, you've been, you've been highly recognized in many different, like very, very prominent publications and festivals and all this stuff. What do you credit that to? What are some of the, the attributes that you think? I think people just want to see people do good shit in the world. Yeah. That's what I think it is. And I think that we have become the poster child of not being focused on purely on monetary gains, like very little. It's, it's about, I think this innate sense of good that people have. And we are that poster child. We're that representative of like, Oh my God, what happens when you just double down on trying to help someone? Look at, look what comes out of that. And so I think that there's a hunger for that. And I think that people intuitively want to do good and not just go donate some time at the Humane Society, which mm. is great. And it's just awesome. And it's, yeah, sure. but they, people want to do good and they want to do more. So I think that that's really what has, has led to our success and the fact that we are just absolutely obstinately pig headed in this belief that nothing is impossible and it doesn't matter your degrees, your diplomas, your credentials. It just matters your, your grit and your drive and your will. And if they're truly, if you're driven and there's a reason to do it, the one, then you will figure it out. And I think people take a lot of inspiration from that because I think everyone, you know, myself included, everyone doubts themselves. Sure. Everyone doubts that we're worthy, that we're talented enough, that we're smart enough. Brilliant thing about not impossible. We don't have the degrees or the diplomas or the credentials. Right. We don't have, there's nothing on paper that says we should be able to pull off the shit that we pull off. Right, right. Nothing on paper. Right. Yet we keep doing it. So what is that? And I think that that for people is this like, wait a second. And I always joke about this, but it's like, wait, if that dumb ball guy can do it. And for the listeners out there, I'm dumb and bald. Uh, <laughs> If he can do it, then maybe I can do it too. And I think that acts as a, as this moment of inspiration for people. What's the, what's the team that you have now look like? And, and are, are you starting to enroll and recruit people that have heard about, it? I, mean, I got to imagine you're starting to expand and grow as you start to get yeah, more and I mean, more. The his, this is where the producer thing comes back in. Yeah. If I said, all right, man, here's the deal. Jamie, uh, I want you to produce a science fiction film. Mm. Go. What are you going to do? Uh, You're going to go find people who have an expertise in science fiction oh, films, true, yes. right? Yeah. And I go, wait, wait, wait. You know what? Cancel that. And you, you got the crew. You're ready to go. We're, we start shooting them. I'm like, Jamie, here's the deal, dude. Script change. It's now a Western. <laughs> Is that same team going to be the team that you're going to work with? Probably not. You're going to probably go get someone else. So the brilliant thing about what we do is that a producer finds horses for courses and they find if we need a nuclear physicist, we'll find that particular person. But we don't have a massive staff of experts because it depends every year, depends on the different things that we're going to work on. So most of my team is project management, it's storytelling, it's oversight, and it's just scrappy people who are able to build teams. But the, the true brilliance of the teams that we build are acquired through people who believe in the cause of what we're up to. Amazing. 
Amazing. What is next? What are you excited about next? What's the next project for Not Impossible or you, the next iteration of Not Impossible potentially? What are you looking forward to? So, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but yeah. the um, I have been obsessed with this concept of food insecurity. Food right? insecurity. Mm-hmm. Which it sounds like, what does that mean? Is that just being that, hungry? That was my next question. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> was that just being hungry? Sure. So food insecurity means of 21 meals a week, three meals a day, seven days a week, maybe you got 15, mm-hmm. maybe you got 14, right? So you've got enough to stay alive, but you're constantly stressed about where your next meal is going to come from. There's uncertainty. Every day you wake up and maybe you wake up and you're hungry because you didn't eat the night before, you didn't eat that day. 50 million people in this country are food insecure, mm. right? Now, just for comparison, just for for data's point, data's sake, 650,000 people in this country are homeless. So think about that spectrum. Big gap. Yeah. It's a massive gap, right? Yeah. You're talking about like, you know, 0.5%, you know, based on this. Did I do the math right on that one? I think so. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not a good at math. Sorry. I'm not good at yeah, math. Yeah, I told you. There's a dumb ball, <laughs> dumb ball guy. Another one right here. So we then started to, to look at this and go, well, wait a second, what does food insecurity mean? And it means that these people are on the hustle, right? You're from Michigan, right? Yeah. These are people that are working on the assembly line. These are people that are constantly out there. Maybe they got multiple jobs. They've got kids there, but they're constantly worried about where the next meal is going to come from. I don't think you probably heard the statistic that, you know, there's a massive population of our country that are $700 away from being homeless. Yeah. You yeah. know, like they're con- so they're, you're constantly on that, having to refill the gas, refill the, the glass before it all runs out. And, and so that stress leads to a lot of, health issues. It leads, there's a lot of chronic conditions that, that relate or that come out of that. And so we started seeing all these correlations and we're like, wait a second, we live in one of the most prosperous, most incredible countries in the world. And there's a lot of amazing countries, a lot of first world countries. How could this be? This is just not right. And what we realized it's a supply chain issue. Hmm. There's plenty of food. There's plenty of people who need the food, but we're not connecting the dots. So we said, all right, we're going to do something about this. So we started to obsess about it and kind of go through the typical process. We start to talk to people, interview people. And what we realized was that uh, when we started interviewing people and we interviewed, we've interviewed homeless kids in Venice beach where I'm from. And we asked them, what's the one thing that you prize most? What's the one thing that you want more than anything? What would you think that they would answer? If they're homeless? I mean, for me, it would be shelter, a home. Or what else? Give me some other things you're thinking uh, of. Food, stability, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, love, connection, those sort, all of that stuff. Survey says, eh. Really? You know what they wanted? No. A cell phone. No kidding. Why? Why do you think they'd want a cell phone? I mean, connection, I suppose. Bam, you just nailed it. Right? The cell phone doesn't know where you slept last night. It doesn't know that your shoes are all tattered and torn. It doesn't know that you slept outside. It doesn't know what your color of your skin is, who you sleep with, who you pray to. It is this, this equalizer and it's this communication tool. So we were, it blew us away. Most people wouldn't yeah. think that as no. you know, this situation exemplifies. And so we went, all right, wow, there's something there. And then we did the study and we started that. 96% of the people in this country have a cell phone. There's not 96% of us in this country that have any similarities (laughs) except for maybe breathing air and pumping blood. (laughs) And the next thing is probably a cell phone, right? So we went, all right, let's exploit that commonality, that unifying data point and figure out what we could do with that. So 
after a lot of research and a lot of like, you know, prototyping and, and there's a lot of funny stories and some of the stuff that we tried, we ended up creating this text based solution, not an app hmm. because how many times have you texted today? Oh God. Tons, right? My thumbs hurt. Yeah. How many times have you been on every one of the apps on your oh, phone? Uh, never. Never. Right. Yeah. App adoption is a really difficult thing. And if you're food insecure, the last thing you need is some complicated app where you got to put in a bunch of information. But so we made it text because it's a minimum viable product, lowest common denominator. It's and it's what we call frictionless. That's a really key thing in terms of how we operate. Mm. We're constantly looking for frictionless innovation, frictionless solutions. So we created a text-based solution that deploys on the side of the organization who owns that constituency of people. So if it's the Boys and Girls Club, then they they know all of the kids in their community hmm. who are food insecure and the families are food insecure. They've spent their lives, you know, those the people at that that Boys and Girls Club and the management and in the running of the operations, they know those families. They know the struggle there. So they're now able to assign this number. They can they can basically say to a mom and dad, they can say, Hey, if you guys need a meal, we're gonna we're gonna pick up the tab on you getting a meal. You just have to text this number. And so Here's the brilliant thing about it. All the person has to do on that side is text the word order. Hmm. Then it, the next, it, it creates a chat bot, right? And the next thing that pops up is it says, great, are you still at the address that you were? One for yes, two for no, yes. Third, okay, next thing that pops up is a list of restaurants that are geo-proximate to them, that are close to them. So let's say they choose number three, which is Dave's Deli, right? Mm-hmm. They choose Dave's Deli. Then the next list is the number of the menu items. And it gives them five menu items that we have curated yeah. automatically. We've scraped all the data off the web. We've scraped it. And now it offers them the best and most nutritious offering from that menu item. Because we want to make sure we're getting, putting good fuel in the tank. Because a lot of people are food insecure, eating crap food that they get off the bottom shelf of the of the grocery store, right? Sure, sure. So now... They've been able, then, then they, we say, great, now you get to go into the, the restaurant and pick it up. And when they walk in, they don't walk in as Jamie, the person who can't afford to feed his family. Jamie, the person who's struggling, who's only eaten 14 meals this week instead of 21. You just walk in as Jamie and you walk in and I'm in front of you. And I said, hey, my name's Mick. And they're like, oh, here you go, Mick. Here's your burrito. Yeah. And then you walk in and you say, hi, my name's Jamie. And they're like, here you go, Jamie. Here's your burrito. That's it. And then yeah. you walk out. So we've fed you conveniently. We've done it with... Uh, in a nutritious way and we've done it with dignity yeah. because now you get to walk in and walk out of Jamie, not as the person who's food insecure. So that was our whole premise, right? And we launched that at the beginning of the pandemic because we said there's too many kids they are going to be losing their free and reduced meals. Schools are closing. Everything's closing. World's closing down. We got to make sure people don't go hungry. Well, a funny thing happened. All of a sudden, we started seeing adoption rates of this thing 95% adoption rates. You don't get 95% adoption rates of anything. Oh, right. And we went, holy cow. And then we started, peep, started, people were texting us back. And so we were having these, in these dialogues, these conversations with this, this, this population of people who are constantly on the hustle, but they're, 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 they're moving and they're really difficult to get a hold of. And what we realized is that in using food as that engagement, you know, vehicle, we created this engagement platform now that is, unheard of in terms of how you can create communication channels with a at risk, very difficult to communicate with population. Well, then we backed that out and realized what is the one industry that has the most to gain, that has the largest budget and has the most to gain and loses the most amount of money on this population? It's healthcare. The two mm-hmm. biggest budgets in the world are healthcare and, and, and military, yeah. right? Yeah. So we have now begun working with healthcare companies. And our whole point is if you feed people, you can 
make things, you can create uh, intrinsic contingencies to things where you can say, Hey, listen, Jamie, you know, you've been feeding, we've been feeding you for about a month or so. We need you to go to the doctor's office. If you want to stay on the program, if you want to unlock your next months of meals, you got to go to the doctor's office. Do you know how valuable that is to a healthcare company? Yeah. Because the healthcare company, especially in the Medicaid population, sure. they, they have to keep you healthy. Yeah. If they don't keep you healthy, they cost them thousands and thousands of dollars. Do you know what you do if you're a Medicaid? Typically the statistically. Yeah. If you get a sniffle, do you know where you go? The, uh, I don't know, the ER? ER. Yeah. Do you know how much an ER visit costs? No, probably a lot. So now we've realized <laughs> if we can just get you to, instead of going to the ER, we're going to get you to go to the doctor's office because you want to keep eating. We've now saved $15,000 to that healthcare company. Mm. If we can get you, if you're a diabetic, if we can get you eating meals that are, that's the easiest way. I don't know if you have any friends or family that are diabetic. Mm -hmm. What's the easiest way to, to abate? diabetes. Um, yeah. Eat well. Yeah. Oh, fair. Right. Yeah. You just eat well. Gotcha. Just don't eat shit food. <laughs> yeah. So the, the whole reason that people are, are taking insulin and doing things like that is because the levels go up. If you eat healthy, then, yeah. then all of a sudden you're able to keep it at bay. We can create that contingency. If you want to stay in the program, this is the food you're going to eat. So we basically have, have realized that in, in our desire of feeding a food insecure population, we actually have created this, this health tool for healthcare companies to try to keep this population in mass, keep them healthier. Now, all of a sudden you're talking about changing lives, right? Yeah. Now you're talking about changing families. You're giving people this sense of stability that the stress is gone and they're making them, and there you have healthier communities. Where is this right now? We've like got 10 different pilot cities. We're about 18 months old, 10 different pilot cities, some of the big cities, obviously. Uh, and we fed about in our first kind of pilot phase, we fed over 200,000 meals. Wow. Wow. What, what do you see the, what's the panacea with this. Panacea is that right now, every person on Medicaid now through the company, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with how Medicaid and Medicare works, but the Medicaid population, um, they're on SNAP. They're like, you know, there's, there's organizations that are responsible for managing them. And it's a massive industry as well in terms of trying to deal with them, but you can't wrangle this population that that's hard to in interface with. It's hard to get them to, to communicate with you. So what we're now able to do, the panacea of this is that every person in the country who's food insecure mm -hmm. has access to this through their healthcare provider. And in doing so, we get them off of the program. That, that's the craziest thing. So if you're an entrepreneur listening to this right now, here's the crazy thing. The panacea is that we eliminate food insecurity in this country mm. and everybody now can can just go back to their world and, and they can work and they can pay taxes and they can pay their rent and they can they can you know just have a have a have a balanced and uh, stable life that's 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 kind of the dream. That's yeah. the dream that we have. No, that makes sense. I, I interviewed a prior guest. Uh, she's on our in our women's uh, our women's division of GoBundance, and she went through. I mean, just an incredible upbringing. A lot of abuse, insecurity in many different yeah. ways because of that. And one of the things you talked about going in and, and being able to get a meal and get it with dignity. She described that as far as going from like low income housing into yep. what was uh, uh, assisted housing. Like she got, but it wasn't dubbed it as that. She was getting assistance, but it wasn't viewed as that. Like, you live in that place. Confidence was something that she said was mm -hmm. the big builder on that, which yep. really launched to her to be where she is now. Very successful, multiple streams of income, yep. you know, owns a couple of schools. I think that's one of the things, too, that really comes from this is you go in with dignity. That's a, that's a component. Man, I can't. You nailed it. Dignity is everything. There's a, a friend of Mars who his company is about to go public, right? Uh, this is an amazing story. He grew up sleeping in his car with his mom. His mom had a drug problem. So he and his brother slept in cars. They slept on friends' couches. He played baseball in, on his team 
because the baseball team would have lunch every day. Mm. And he always, he, he hates baseball. <laughs> he ended up being so good. He went to college. It never stopped his hatred for baseball, but it gave him the ability to eat. Right. He told stories about, he, he knew a couple other kids who were in the same circumstance as him and they would look out for each other because there were different lines that you could go, th- go through at the cafeteria and they would kind of watch, keep point and then people would go through it so that none of the other kids would be able to see it. Dignity is one of those things where once you give that back to people or give people the option of that, all of a sudden you have a loyalty that is, you, you can't even measure it. So the story that you're telling about this, this woman makes total sense. And we get that coming back to us all the time. Not just the fact that I got a chance to eat and not just the fact that it was convenient, but the fact that I just get to walk in like everybody else, that moment of dignity is more powerful quite possibly than the actual food they're putting in their belly. Incredible. Man, you got me a little bit emotional on this. It's in, it's insane. And your power of it, it, the ability to enroll, like I'm I'm in. Like <laughs> if I had any knowledge on what to do here, I would absolutely be. Here, I'll, I'll, let me finish. The, I'll tell you the buddy of mine who is about to go public, he's going to, he's going to be a very, very, very wealthy person. Sure. I said, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to buy a boat. And I said, what are you going to name the boat? And without hesitating, he goes, it's going to be called no more baseball. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hates it that much. <laughs> well, now it's like he doesn't have to. Right, right, know, right. So. Good for him. Yeah. Incredible, man. I think we're up on time here pretty close. So I'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, you're speaking uh, tomorrow night at this event. Um, can you give me a little preview? What, what do you plan to kind of dive into? I'm going to talk a lot about what we just talked about. Talk a little bit about the origin of Non Impossible with the iRider and then the the progress into Project Daniel. And I'm going to talk about Bento and the, the work that we're doing with Bento. And if you're interested in learning more about Bento, go to gobento.com. Gobento.com. And if you you want more about non-impossible labs go to nonimpossible.com beautiful anywhere to follow you social handles anything like yeah, that yeah i'm everything's at non-impossible and that's where you can find us beautiful nick well, this is amazing i appreciate you being on thanks a lot all right brother. cheers well that's it for this episode but be sure you subscribe for future episodes give us a rating and review as well it just helps us grow the podcast grow the reach and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis be sure to go over and check out gobundance.com while you're at it check out emerge if you're a future millionaire our elite division if you're in that one to five million dollar range or our champion division at five million plus or on the women's side gobundance women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women and if you haven't already jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast and you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon. 